Today on When Opinions Collide, we'll be talking about vaccines, to vax or not to vax. We have two very, very wonderful individuals uh, with us today, and I'm excited to hear from them. And it's not your typical conversation. Normally, you have folks who say that we should force vaccinate everyone and anyone. And then we have the folks who have no answers to the questions that are that are brought to them about these older diseases, these things that vaccines were designed to protect us from. Today, I think I've got some guests that uh, will have a lot of fun. I'm your host, uh, Jonathan Fiala. This is When Opinions Collide. Howdy. So today I'm joined by Dr. Bethany Reif and uh, Robin. How are you guys today? We're good. Okay. Hi. So I'd like to go ahead and start off with, this is a really interesting issue. And it's one of those issues that you see folks sort of demonize the other side. And I'm really, really interested to hear what these two have to say today because they have some, some thoughts. And actually, I think we can find some common ground, at least in uh, uh, thought process. With that said, I'd like to go ahead and start off with giving Robin the floor. She's a uh, biologist who's worked with the, uh, the Human Genome Pro Project in UT Dallas. I'll give her the floor and let her speak for herself here. Uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what, your, what your opinions are and your journey. Thanks, John. So I started off as a normal mom. When I was in college, I majored in biology with a focus in human genetics. And then I went on to work at the Human Genome Project at UT Southwestern at Dallas. And it was a few years later that I decided to go to law school. And so I ended up having a legal career. And when I became a mom with my firstborn son, he, he came into the world. And within a day or two, we vaccinated him for hepatitis B as you are asked to do at the hospital. I had not researched hepatitis B. Um, people are surprised to find out you don't study infectious disease necessarily in getting a degree in biology. It wasn't a course that I took. I didn't know that it was a blood derived um, or bloodborne illness. And I did not know that it was typically spread through the use of intravenous drug needles and risky sexual practices. Had I known that, I probably wouldn't have vaccinated him for that. So he got that vaccine before we left the hospital. And then at two months, we went ahead and we vaccinated him with um, seven or it's eight vaccines and several combinations. And so polio, rotavirus, pneumococcal, another hepatitis B, pertussis, diphtheria, <laughs> um, tetanus. So he got them all at, at two months old. And he by then was a colicky baby. And so as we were driving away, he fell into a really deep sleep. And I was not used to having a kid who slept in public. He didn't hardly sleep during daytime at all. And he was so tired and in such a deep sleep that I actually pulled over in a parking lot and I called my husband and I said, something's wrong. I'm looking at him and he's just sound asleep in the car. When I got home, I lifted him out of the car seat. He was sound asleep. I put him into his crib. He was sound asleep. This lasted for hours. And when he woke, he woke with this high-pitched, shrill scream. It was an absolute nightmare. So many moms have gone through what I've gone through. They've heard what I've heard. Their little arms jut straight out. And these are tiny, nine-week-old, 10-pound babies. And he's screaming this high-pitched scream. And I'm calling the doctor's office. They're lying to me. They're saying that it's normal. They're saying that it's pain from the injection site. It very clearly is not the kind of scream a baby would have if he had a sore thigh. That's just simply not what it was. This was a full body pain. And um, I'm trying to nurse him through it. The doctor's telling me to give them some of the baby Tylenol that they sent me home with, which come to find out is probably one of the worst things that you could do. Um, and he cycled through this several times in that day. And it seemed by 6 or 7 p.m., he seemed like he was going to be okay. And people say, why didn't you go to the hospital? Well, I mean, I had just had a baby. I was postpartum. Postpartum anxiety stops you from making the kind of decisions that you would make 10 years later. And I had a doctor on the phone telling me that it was no big deal. So he seemed to be okay by the evening. And then in the following weeks, we started to watch his head grow. He had a little, um, a little knitted cap with bear ears on it that was so cute. And just within weeks, it didn't fit him 
at all anymore. His head had really started to grow. And he went from the 50th percentile to the 60th, to the 70th, to the 80th, all the way up to the 90th percentile. Within a few weeks, this kid's head was enormous. and the pediatrician was not. If your child's growth rates aren't staying on the same line that they had already been on, that it is a cause for concern. His his weight and his height wasn't changing like that. Why was his head growing to be so enormous? You see a lot of these kids now, and it's actually a hallmark of autism, is to have a certain head shape with like a certain sort of spacing now between the eyes and this proportion of forehead. And you have to wonder if these children's brains are swelling, of course, no one is really doing any research into it. He developed eczema and people think that eczema is no big deal. Eczema is, it has the potential to be an absolute nightmare. It's dry, cracked, weeping, sometimes bleeding skin, inside the elbows, backs and knees, on the wrists, on the ankles. When he started eating, he started reacting to everything that he ate, um, bananas, sweet potato, so his cheeks were inflamed all the time. And you know you see babies like that, whose cheeks are just inflamed all the time. Mucus coming down and the mucus is causing rashes. It was just a nightmare. Just he ate one bite of banana. He had a rash for 10 days. And at six months, I took him in. And so I asked the pediatrician what's going on. And the doctor went ahead and tested him just um, like a general, probably 12, top 12 allergen um, panel, came back and said that he had a peanut allergy. So we're very lucky. By the grace of God, we knew that he had an anaphylactic peanut allergy from the age of six months old. So um, we just had to, we had to learn to live around that and to be very protective of him. And he has, despite my best efforts, and it's always my fault, <laughs> gone into anaphylactic shock five times um, between the ages of... Um, I think about three to seven, he went into anaphylactic shock five times. I mean, I've got a kid who looks at me and says, mommy, I'm dying. It's, it's horrifying. And, um, and, and I mean, and it's truly horrifying because if you mess up as I have messed up and you delay administering epinephrine as I have delayed, your kid can absolutely have a stroke, have a heart attack, go into anaphylactic shock where his blood pressure drops. Like all of these things have happened to us. He's gotten peanut protein on his little fingers in preschool in a peanut free school because somebody brought it in It got on the dinosaurs and he rubbed his eyes. And I mean, and my kid is dying right in front of people and they don't know what's happening. He just slows his breathing. He stops talking. He's not standing anymore. They don't know what's happening. And he's this little tiny guy. He's four years old. And I'm like, EpiPen him, EpiPen him. I'm on the way. And the ambulance is on the way. And it's an absolute nightmare. This little kid turned me into who I am today. And so I really went on a quest to learn about vaccination, anaphylactic food allergies, and especially aluminum, which is something I hope that we get to talk about today and how it's this elephant in the room with vaccination that, that nobody is talking about in, in the, at the doctor's office. Wow. That's a lot to go through, especially as a mom. I, I can't even imagine. Uh, and thank you for, for coming on to share today. Uh, Bethany, uh, you have the floor. Tell us a little bit about yourself Hi. and your position. Hi. I'm, my name is Dr. Bethany Reif. I'm a pediatrician. I've been a pediatrician for about 10 years. Uh, I, um, I current, I just in the past few months left, a, I worked at a regular pediatric clinic, um, just a small practice, six physicians. Uh, so not related to any giant uh, hospital system or anything. But um, just in January, I left that practice, opened up my own cash practice. Um, I got tired of the insurance. Um, just not being able to take care of my patients well, because I'm expected to see them in seven to 15 minutes. And uh, that drove me nuts. The, the other thing that also contributed to me finding my, you know, founding my own practice um, is this whole vaccine issue, because I um, fully am, I think that patients should have a choice and parents should have a choice. And so I'm not your traditional a physician that says everyone has to be vaccinated and, you know, why are we giving parents choices and those kinds of things? That's not who I am. I have several unvaccinated and partially vaccinated patients in my practice and several fully vaccinated patients. Um, so that's how I prefer to practice medicine. I think everyone should, um, this should be something that the pa parents and the physician discuss. Both parents should be involved in this discussion. 
and hopefully on the same page. And, uh, and I'm just here. My role is to give you as much information as I can, educate you the best way that I can, answer any questions you have. I tell parents all the time, if you found an article or something you're concerned about or you have a question, send it to me. Let me go over it. Let me, let me see, you know, help you through um, the medical jargon and, and help you understand, especially if they don't have any kind of a science background. Um, then a lot of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so just trying to help parents, you know, weed through the information, which is hard even for me to weed through all the information when trying to, to prepare for this. So um, I, I very much am for parent choice, but I do um, think that for most people, vaccines are perfectly safe and that they do save lives on a regular basis. And, you know, these diseases that we're vaccinating for, most of them, there are caveats to that, but most of them are very dangerous and we're causing hundreds of deaths per year. And uh, so the, the discussion I do think needs to be changed as far as how it's being had across the, the medical field and that we don't need to be coercing patients into vaccination. Um, I think that the physician world needs to be open to discussing um, you know, side effects and those types of things, but also we need to be doing, we need to be looking at the data and discussing benefit versus cost and letting parents make that decision and giving them good information to make that decision. Um, so that's who I am. And I have um, my, just a little bit more about me personally. I, uh, I went to school in Texas. Um, I graduated from Texas A&M. I did my medical school at UTMB in Galveston and did residency at Texas A&M um, in Temple, which is with Scott and White. And I have four children and uh, currently living in Alabama. Well, thank you. Thank you both for being on here. And that's why it's one of the reasons I was so excited to actually get both of you to the table here. It's not a conversation that you normally have. Most people are either no vaccines, no thought, no science. The, the, I, I've talked to people who have, I've got my crystal, you know, that'll, that'll save you from the, vac er, from, from the things that the vaccines are supposed to save you from. And then I've had doctors say, if your kid is not vaccinated, they have no place in the public square. They have no place being around other people. Basically, the parents are accused of child abuse if they don't vaccinate their kid. And I, I feel like if it's not in bad faith, maybe that it's misguided statement at the very, the very least to say that parents are abusing the child. They have legitimate concerns that need to be answered. So uh, with the opening statements done, I'd like to ask you, uh, I'll start off with uh, Ms. Robin here. Let me ask you real quick. The danger of anti-vax hotspots is something that a lot of people talk about. And I, I hear, you know, we had that breakout in New York. We have, we, we, people talk about Austin as a huge problem because we have X amount of children there who are not vaccinated. Uh, what would be your response to people who say that anti-vax hotspots are actually a, a danger to those who are immunocompromised or just a danger in general? I would like to then to point to any incidents in the past that that has ever happened. I mean, to my knowledge, there has never been an incident of an unvaccinated child or an anti-vax hotspot that had a measles outbreak and then exposed measles to an immunocompromised child who then died of measles. I actually think that's some sort of urban legend. And I talked to enough lawmakers that I do know that this is passed around all the time and it's testified to, public health testifies to this sort of scenario about these are the kids that we have to protect, you know, the kids on chemo, uh, organ transplant recipients, which there aren't even very many of those in the whole country. Um, I, I, I just, I've never known it to happen. And I'll tell you, if something like that had happened, it would be national news. Uh, all of us, all of us would know like, oh yeah, what about this incident? What about this incident? So, so we don't, we don't know about it. I don't know about it ever happening. It's funny you mentioned Austin. I'm actually from the neighborhood that is right in front of the Waldorf School that is probably Austin's number one anti-vax hotspot. I mean, that's exactly where I grew up. And that's a very small school. I know people who go there. And so, I mean, I don't know what the enrollment is, but you can get a very high percentage-wise anti-vax hotspot 
if you only have a few children enrolled in the school, you know, so if you've got 10 unvaccinated kids or 20 unvaccinated kids, but you've got 200 enrolled in the school, that's not very many unvaccinated children. But when you call it an anti-vax hotspot and, and you might see the headlines, 20%, 30%, 50%, something like that. I mean, what if you have a school of 10 kids and five of them are unvaccinated? That becomes an anti-vax hotspot. That's reported in the news percentage-wise, but you don't know what the total enrollment is. So it's, it's very misleading, but I'm honestly, I've just never heard of an anti-vax hotspot um, being an issue. I think that the truth behind anti-vax hotspots is that ordinarily they are ethnic and religious groups who are intentionally exposing their children to something like measles. And so you can have Ukrainians, you can have Orthodox Jews, and they are not afraid of these diseases at all. And I'm not saying all Orthodox Jews don't vaccinate. I'm sure there's a ton of Orthodox Jews who do vaccinate, but there's a large proportion that choose to um, expose their children to measles. They take care of their children through measles and then they have lifelong immunity. No one's going to end up getting measles at 45 years old when the complications are far more serious and end up in the hospital with encephalitis when they could simply have it when they're 9 or 10 years old. And so we're looking at these communities in, let's say, New York State or in Washington State with Ukrainian immigrants and we're acting like the whole thing is this out of control accident. It's not an out of control accident. Um, the Washington state didn't even have any incidents, I don't believe, of anyone outside of their own community coming down with measles. So it was actually a very controlled and intentional outbreak. So actually that rolls right into my first question for Bethany Reif. Bethany, uh, what are these diseases that we're vaccinating from? I mean, weren't a lot of these childhood diseases that people got over when they were young? Some of them, like measles and chickenpox, for the most part, especially chickenpox, um, yeah, most people get chickenpox, they do just fine, but there are a percentage that get severe chickenpox and get an encephalitis and die. Um, measles is a higher percentage of that, and so that's why the measles is, is, uh, was, is vaccinated for, maybe it was developed sooner than the chickenpox. Um, so, but the big ones, I mean, measles is somewhat of a big one. The reason I think measles is such a, considered such a danger is just because it spreads so easily. If you are not vaccinated for measles and you're in a room near, even after the person with measles left, maybe two hours ago, and you're in that room, your chances of catching measles with exposure is 90%. So it spreads so fast, so easily. Um, the, the, we call, the way we rate diseases is are not is how many, if one infected person, how many people would get it from that one infected person, assuming a completely non-immune population, one person will spread measles to about 16 people. So that's really fast. And so that, and then that spreading, really mentioning like who we're protecting. Yes, we're protecting the immunocompromised, but that includes every child less than one years old. We're protecting the babies. Um, that's who we're protecting. Those are who get me the measles and chickenpox. You get them less than one years old, your chances of getting really sick are really big. And that's what's concerning. But aside from those diseases, the ones to me that are scarier uh, is the strep pneumo, which is the Prevnar vaccine. Strep pneumo causes, it can cause basic things like ear infections and uh, UTIs, upper respiratory infections, but it also causes pneumonia, meningitis, sepsis, and death. And I've, I think that one's probably the one I talk about the most because I've seen two children die of strep pneumo meningitis uh, back in residency. I wasn't paying attention at the time to the vaccination rate, so I don't know if those children were vaccinated or not. They were both over one years old though. Um, they were somewhere between 16 and 18 months. And the, and everything was done properly. It's not like they were brought to the, the hospital late or anything like that. They were brought in when they had fever. It wasn't recognized immediately. We just knew they were sick. They were started on antibiotics. Um, and overnight, basically overnight, they deteriorated and, and were gone by the next day. And we were doing everything we possibly could what, that we knew to do. Nothing was missed or, or done wrong. Um, they were on the, they were given appropriate medical treatment there was, and then there was a baby just a few months back in my, in my previous practice um, that, had, that had also got strep pneumo meningitis. And, uh, and she actually had her first vaccine, but it, one vaccine in a baby is not considered incredibly protective. It's only partially protective. 
and she survives. We think maybe she's deaf, but she is alive. Um, so, and then there's also Hib, um, Haemophilus influenza, which is a bacteria. It's not related to flu. Same, same idea. It causes the meningitis, can cause death. When we came out with that vaccine, doctors um, in the hospital say that their meningitis rates went down by over 50%. So we're saving lives. So, so I, thank I you would, for that. I just jotted down some notes. So if you don't mind, can I respond specifically to some of Bethany's points? You know what? Jump right in. Okay, so um, I want to go to, so Bethany, you pointed out that one person infected with measles can give it to 16 other. I happened to read a really interesting article last year, and I actually just went and found it this morning, um, and it talks about that. I think that the actual number that they're using is so that RO number, which is the basic reproduction number, the number that it's assumed an affected person can spread to, it's 12 but in densities, then it can be higher. I think, but like nationally or on average, it's assumed to be 12. But that gets into the very interesting problem with the measles vaccine, because in densities and in high contact communities, such as Orthodox Jewish communities, that number can be as high as 24, it can be as high as 36. So there was this really interesting article, and Bethany, if you want, I can find it for you and send it to you. It came out May 2019. New York Daily News, and it was this infectious disease doctor named Dr. Daniel Berman. And so he, he's Jewish. And so he was first off wanted people to know, yes, Jewish people vaccinate their kids. However, you have a primary failure rate for the measles vaccine, which means the number of people who are non-responders, right? So the primary failure rate of the measles vaccine is 7%, right? So if we're going to claim that you need 95% vaccinated to have measles vaccine herd immunity, we're already failing right out of the gate, even if 100% of people were vaccinated because 7% don't respond. So then we do the second dose. And with the second dose, you do pick up a couple percentage points with those non-responders, but that's not lasting immunity. It could last a few months, but the people who are non-responders tend to go back to go back down to baseline rather quickly. And so in an Orthodox Jewish community, basically, if we say you have 93 or 94, 95% efficacy for two doses of measles vaccine, if it's high contact, they had this mathematician explaining that even a 100% vaccination rate in a high density city or high contact community still would never meet herd immunity. Never. Like there's nothing we can do unless everybody spreads out and goes to live on a farm. So that's just something really interesting. And that's not anybody's fault. That's just the primary failure rate of the measles vaccine. On top of that, we have secondary failure for measles vaccine. So what that means is in 10, 13, maybe 15 years, you've got 10 or 15% of the population whose antibody threshold has dropped below what is deemed to be the protective rate. And so like that's another percentage. On top of the 7% who are non-responders, now you've got the people that the vaccine has waned in. So it's really not solely an issue of parents who are refusing to get the MMR vaccine, whether for personal or religious reasons, the vaccine can never replace the natural immunity. And I agree with you about how serious this is for babies. We have to look at the history of measles, though. Measles was never a disease of babies. The measles infection wasn't even a disease of older people. Prior to the vaccine being licensed, which I think was 1962, the average age of infection was 10. And that's the perfect age for a healthy kid to get a measles infection. So those babies, just by virtue of being gestated and then um, of being hopefully breastfed, they have a, a couple of years of immunity from their mothers. And then actually they've got true herd immunity because herd immunity with measles vaccine doesn't mean that measles is gonna go away. Herd immunity with measles, I'm sorry, I didn't mean measles vaccine. Herd immunity with measles, natural measles, never meant that measles was going to be eradicated. It meant that it came in three to four year cycles. And so historically, and actually we still see this today, even with the measles vaccine, outbreaks happen in three to four year cycles. And so you have these um, kids who, they might be around measles, be around it, be around it, they don't get it, and then all of a sudden everybody gets the measles. And so that's just cyclical, that's just natural for how it is. And now we have vaccinated these kids. So one-year-olds have immunity from, um, the vaccine itself, and then it's going to wear off. And so um, when you have a baby who's not vaccinated for it, born to a mother who was vaccinated for it, and she doesn't have any natural immunity to pass on, that baby is now in a danger zone. That's a man-made problem. We did this. Public health did this. Public health failed us. 
on this issue. Um, I know that you're probably wanting to move on, but <laughs> can you I just want to jump in and let <laughs> and let Bethany actually go ahead and respond to that. You took or we, we took about uh, five or six minutes there. Bethany, you've got the floor for five or six. Okay, so my we would have to know and I don't know off the top of my head the rate of measles infections in the past and the rate of, of measles deaths in the past. But if you think about it back then when we had um, when we had people unvaccinated and spreading the disease like what you're saying about it was mostly a disease of childhood if not of babies. Back then babies stayed at home with their mamas for who knows how long for the first six months to a year. Mamas weren't working like they are now. These kids weren't going to daycare. I, I would, my main concern with using that data as of now is that the babies have so much more exposure. The older kids are all going to school. You know, back in the 1900s, early 1900s, the kids didn't go to school. They, you know, mm -hmm. they had just started to go to these small groups of schools. And so the exposure was incredibly limited. Now, the average kid is probably exposed to, I don't know, you know, a ton, more, you know, there's just a lot more exposure. So we have to be careful using past experiences and past mm. numbers and information and relating it to now. Um, so that's my first, my first kind of, my first concern. The other thing um, is I, I, I get what you're saying about the herd immunity, like the vaccine doesn't, yeah, we only get partial immunity and partial, like partial rates, you know, yeah, 90 to 95%. And it does eventually wear off but we're still decreasing and that's the goal. I mean, if we can decrease the rates of spreading measles or any of these diseases by anywhere by, from 80 to 90%, we're saving lives. These were killing hundreds of thousands of children in a year. And it, it's just, if we can decrease, even if we decrease the spread and I, you know, I don't have numbers off the top of my head for that, but if we can decrease, I mean, we only had, I think the outbreak of 2018, we had what, 800 cases or something like that that's so low compared to what there was before we had the vaccine. So we're still saving lives with that, even if it's not perfect, like you're saying, it's not, it's not perfect at all. Nothing in medicine is. So with that said, let's catch this right on the other side of the break. We're coming right up on the uh, commercial break. We'll catch you two on the other side. And we're back. You're listening to When Opinions Collide. I'm joined by Robin and Bethany. If you're listening to us terrestrially, that would be on AM 1540 or 101.7 in Houston. So we're back and uh, we're going to go ahead and pick up where we left off. Bethany and uh, Robin, the floor is yours. So Bethany was talking about how she felt that maybe one of the reasons that babies were not getting measles prior to the vaccine being licensed in 1962 was that they weren't going to school. Um, I just want to point out two things. One is that maternal immunity is a verifiable phenomenon. I mean, there is certainly literature on that, and we see that in countries that don't have super high vaccination rates. Um, but number two is that they always had siblings. They always had siblings going to school, coming home, you know, and running the risks. So I really don't think that that's the strongest argument for why children were not getting measles. I think they weren't getting measles because they had, number one, maternal antibodies, and number two, naturally it runs, it runs in cycles anyway. Um, but one point that I want to talk to, Bethany, is so important. <laughs> it's so important, and I wish that more of us were talking about this is about this idea that measles is airborne contagious. That is so fascinating to me because as you know, in 2018, we were hammered with measles headlines constantly all through December, January, February, you know, into 2019. And that led to a lot of our rights being um, taken away as far as censorship on social media, things like that, right? Adam Schiff, Big Tech, all of this stemmed from, uh, you know, Ethan Lindenberger going to testify before Congress. All of this stemmed from the idea that measles was this huge outbreak and that it was highly contagious. And it got me reading. And the most interesting thing I found is that there is only one source that the CDC uses to say that measles is airborne infectious. And it's a letter. It's not even a published journal piece. And it's a letter to Nature Magazine, 1964. And um, it did have an associated published piece later, but that's not even what the CDC cites too, but something similar did get published in a journal later, but this was a letter and it was talking about measles being airborne. And what it was, was a tiny closet. I mean, tiny, like tinier than your pantry. It was a tiny closet at a laboratory. They sprayed an unknown amount of measles 
uh, virus into the air for four seconds and they put out some plates, right, with nutrient agar, whatever, they collected it up and they grew some measles virus in the plates and it never talked about what an infectious dose was. I don't even want to tell you how far I have gone trying to find out what an infectious dose of measles is. I've gone all the way to NIH. I bought books on Amazon. I have no idea what an infectious dose of measles is. I don't know if they grew enough or not. But what is so fascinating is that that letter in the corresponding study was about humidity. And the humidity in that closet was something like 15% humidity. I mean, it is just simply not replicated in the real world. It was like dry as the Sahara Desert. Like maybe Phoenix, Arizona on its worst day would be as dry as this, right? But our homes are at 40% humidity. Air, I mean, humidity. Our airplanes are at 20% humidity. Uh, you go outdoors, right? And it's 60, 70, 80% humidity. When the humidity was increased in that experiment, Measles, it fell to the floor, fell to the floor, died, couldn't be collected, couldn't be grown, couldn't have certainly grown an infectious dose, nothing. It doesn't relate to real life at all. And this is it for the CDC. It's one study in a tiny closet in humidity that is not replicated in the real world. And for so long, we've been told measles is airborne infectious, when in fact, it's probably just droplet infectious, right? You cough on your hands, you touch a surface. And then that's it. You put it in your eyes, nose, mouth, whatever, and you get measles. But this idea that someone can be in a room and they leave the room and two hours later, a human being can walk in and you've got a 90% chance of catching measles if you don't have immunity. I mean, honestly, it's fraud. It's fraud that this is what we've been told. Yeah. So I, I think it points out, your point overall points out a great, a great um, just issue in the medical world. And that issue is that the, really, the main place that I can get my information is, of course, CDC, FDA. That's what we're taught from. That's how medical education works. So the expectation is that as a physician, I should be able to research my, um, you know, should be able to go and research my, research these things and figure them out for myself and that I should be doing my own background research. Well, a physician working 50 hours a week and then going home and doing their own paper, finishing paperwork and then trying to see their family, there's no physician that does this. Mm -hmm. So we really have to depend on these organizations to tell us these things, which is unfortunate. So actually, that's one of the reasons why I'm getting more into this topic is because at this point in my career, I now have time to research these things and to look, mm -hmm. at, to look at these things. So it is interesting. So I, I mean, of course, that's what I'm going from. But to be honest, it's the media using it that way is a scare tactic. You know, there, there's both sides to this. The media saying, you know, like, oh, it can spread this fast and all these types of things. That's a scare tactic to try to scare people of how dangerous measles is. Is measles still easily spread and still dangerous? Yes. So really, regardless of whether it's airborne or not, we still know that it spreads easily to unvaccinated people. We, we know that it, is, it can be dangerous. Um, in our current medical system, with our current healthcare, people very rarely die, but it does happen. Um, so I don't know the death rates recently, um, but, uh, but it's not very high. I mean, but there is, a, I know with the recent outbreak um, just in the past year or so or whenever it was, and I don't even know if you call it an outbreak by the definition of outbreak, but there was one, there was at least one kid in the ICU, you know, mm -hmm. for like two weeks, you know, that kind of thing. So that stinks. That's awful. Um, but it comes down to, and, and maybe we can get away from the discussion on measles and talk about some of the other diseases, the, because measles, while it is a public health issue in that it, you know, people are missing school and missing things and getting sick, for the most part, you know, a good 90% of people come out of measles just fine. Mm -hmm. um, but some of these other diseases aren't that way, especially for babies. Um, the, the, and the reason I think we need to protect babies more is that I do think that the, the kids are going to school, but I, the, the rates of exposure now, I mean, kids are now going to school with, in schools, the sizes, you know, two or 3,000, 7,000 strong of these schools and this exposure. Whereas in the 1960s, you know, before these vaccines existed, the kids were going to school, you know, a lot smaller than that. We just have more people. We have more exposure. The, the baby, the siblings are going to school, which yes, they had siblings before. Um, but, uh, but in moms, 
I'm trying to think back, and I know that the rate of breastfeeding is improving from what it was several years ago, but, uh, but our rates of, of you know, formula-fed babies is huge, and they do have some maternal immunity. It doesn't, I think it lasts the first four to six months, and uh, so it's very concerning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so if you want to shift to other diseases, if you don't mind, if we could just spend a couple of minutes talking about, you mentioned um, the pneumococcal disease yeah. and how serious that was. Yes. Well, so, pneumococcal and Hib. Pneumococcal and Hib, yeah. And so um, I know that when I had considered continuing on vaccinating my child, that those were the two major ones that I was worried about. I mean, who wants their kid to have meningitis? Ultimately, it wasn't in the cards for us because our pediatrician wasn't as patient and understanding as you, and I got kicked out in front of the whole staff on the day that I went to go do that. So that was the end of that for me. Um, but I have spent some time researching it, not a whole, whole, whole lot of time, um, because I think that the big ones that people like to talk about always are measles and, uh, and open cough. However, I have done some research, and what's interesting to me is that when the Prevnar vaccine first came out, and maybe you know this, it wasn't Prevnar 13, it was something like Prevnar 9 or Prevnar 7, Seven. Seven. right? And what happened, and you may know this, is the serotype replacement, because there are 92 strains of the streptococcal um, bacteria, 92 strains, and so when they vaccinated for the 7, all of a sudden, kids were getting horrible ear infections from other strains that weren't covered in the vaccine. So they immediately had to change the vaccine. So now it's Prevnar 13. You know, there's an adult one, Prevnar 23. And now, you know, they claim they've got it all figured out now. Like, don't worry about the, uh, you know, 69 other strains. We don't think that those are going to do anything. But the same thing, we just, I noticed it last year happening with hip disease is that there was a case in Europe where someone had said, oh, herd immunity, save this baby, blah, 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 who wasn't vaccinated for hip, but the strain of hip was not, um, it was not actually type B. It was a strain that was not covered by the vaccine. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Again, this is serotype shifting that the infectious um, bacteria is coming from something that's not in the vaccine because you you uh you know nature abhors a vacuum and so when we eliminate what is circulating around then all of a sudden nature is like okay well i'm gonna send my other guys in then you know didn't have many of them before right. we're gonna make lots of them now and send it in and so we've seen it with pneumococcal we've seen it with hip and I, I just don't know where the i'm not saying these aren't serious diseases of course they are but like where does this end like so, we're never gonna get on right. top of it no, I agree with you. You're, you're right. The, it is going to select out. That's exactly what it does. It selects out the, because we, we stop spreading these, these strains that we're vaccinating for. And so the other strains pick up. Now with, with Hib, what's interesting with Hib is the, the other strains type A and whatever other types there are, probably a bunch of them. They, most of those are not nearly as, as um, pathogenic. They don't cause severe meningitis and death at near at the rates of what type B does. That's, that's the reason we vaccinated for type B. And that's why the rates of meningitis when we started and the, the Hib one, it, the, it's interesting to me on that one because just my attendings, so just because that one came out in, in the mid eighties. So my attendings that were in, you know, in the hospitals just a few years before I was there, remember all the Hib diseases coming through and the babies dying and the meningitis and all the things. And so they, they watched that, that disease just virtually disappear, mm-hmm. uh, which is amazing. Now, yes, we, I mean, I remember having non, we call it non-typable H flu is what the other ones are called. And uh, those types, yes, we see that, I saw those a few times in residency, maybe several times in residency. Was the kid very sick? No, the kid had a fever and we didn't really know where it was coming from. We isolated the the non-typable Hib and, you know, the kid responded well to antibiotics and went home and there wasn't even that sick. And uh, so sometimes, you know, it was kind of a, they were a mystery to us for a little bit because we have to do the culture for that bacteria kind of thing. Um, But they weren't deathly ill. They were on the floor. They were not in the ICU that, you know, they were regular, regular fever illnesses that we dealt with easily. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the same thing. So with Prevnar, that one came out a while you know, further back. So I don't, I, that one is, but the, the, uh, if we can get rid of most of these severe pathogenic strains, 
even if we're decreasing them, we're still decreasing child death. That's, that's the point is, is still trying to save these children. So even if it's not perfect and yes, we're going to select out these other strains, hopefully they're less pathogenic strains than aren't as deadly. And uh, we'll just have to figure that out. But, but there's not, it's not a reason not to do it, or it's not a reason for the vaccine to not be effective. It, we're still saving babies' lives on a regular basis. So I think there's a trade-off there, and I'm not going to say that it's not important to save babies' lives, but if people are, who are in as deep in it as I am are going to say, well, what's the one vaccine that's most closely linked with the epidemic of peanut allergy anaphylaxis that we have right now, it would be the hip vaccine, right? So you don't just have anaphylactic food allergies. You've got asthma, you have um, autism, ADHD, you've got kids with type 1 diabetes, right? We're in a chronic disease epidemic right now. And so as we're driving down acute and for the most part treatable temporary infection, you're trading it off where if you count obesity, which I don't, you've got 50% chronic illness rate in our children today. And no one is talking about like, who's gonna flatten that curve? No one is talking about this and public health never talks about it at all. And so it's a hard sell for a mom like me to say, yeah. well, we went from a few hundred deaths, which in a country that has 4 million births a year, you're talking about like a 0.0125 chance of dying. You know, if you, if you had 500 deaths a year, it's that small. And the trade-off is that you have a school full of EpiPens and asthma inhalers and kids on ADHD meds. I'm not taking that deal. That's a bad deal for me. So, well, but it's not for the mom of the, of the child that died. It's not. But so to, to address the whole allergy A to B thing, and, and, and I want to acknowledge too, what, what you've gone through and what's going on with your son is, is, is awful and miserable and eczema is awful and can be a life changing and life. It's just, it's just an awful disease. And so, you know, that, and to be afraid all the time. And to carry your EpiPens, like it's just it changes your life, and it's not fair. Um, but the um, the thing is, I think these these issues, these eczema, peanut allergy, all these things are multifactorial. They are not just due to vaccines, if if at all due to vaccines, which we could probably debate that exact point all day long and never mm -hmm. come to a conclusion. But so, but food for thought about the, regarding the issue is the rates of peanut allergy in Israel are virtually none. And the reason being is because they have a peanut snack that they mm -hmm. get feed their babies on a regular basis. And so most of these babies are exposed to peanut very early. Now that wouldn't have worked well for your little boy, but, um, but so that they, the allergy association came out, I want to say in 2018, maybe, and uh, stated that we need to be exposing all of our kids earlier to these allergens and that mm -hmm. our actual withholding of all the so-called allergens, we withhold eggs, we withhold strawberries, we withhold peanuts and all these things. And we've been doing this for so many years and the allergy to these foods and the different food allergies has skyrocketed. And so they came out in the past couple of years and said, no, 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 sorry, we messed up, which medicine does a lot. And mm -hmm. they said, here, feed your kids all of these things, please, you know, small exposures early, you know, frequent exposure, expose them to as many different things as possible. And we believe this will help with the allergies. And so, you know, and we can't, so there's, as far as the allergies goes and those kinds of things. The other thing, when I was trying to, to look at this, if we're, you're right, the chronic disease in, in all of these other things, you know, type one diabetes, all these other diseases is on the rise. Um, but it's not proportional and it doesn't correlate with vaccine rates um, in countries that these things are in the rise uh, in countries that don't have good vaccine rates or they're not rising as quickly in countries with with good vaccine rates and those kinds of things. It's not a it's not a one to one correlation and it doesn't the you know, you've it's it's really frustrating in me trying to find articles to prepare to talk about this. And I find one article that states, okay, here's a clear correlation. We found a good correlation between, you know, whether it was MMR and autism or, or allergies and, and, or, you know, like asthma and allergies and eczema to vaccinations or any of these kinds of things. And then you pull up the very next article and it says that those, and it will name the exact study. It'll say they did it all wrong because of this and this and this or weaknesses in their study. Mm -hmm. And so there's no clear correlation. And then you pull the next study 
and they say, no, 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 that person did it wrong, and here's the right study, you know, it's really, it, it just seems like if this was a clear answer, I really, yeah. I wish there was a clear, a clear, here's your, here's our study, we controlled for all the things we're supposed to control for, we did, we got a true random sample, you know, those types of things, and it, the, other, I'm not a statistician. I'm not a, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a researcher. I just want to practice medicine and help my mm -hmm. patients. <laughs> and so, so a lot of this stuff is really frustrating for me. Wow. Yeah. I wish we had two hours for this because this is, I mean, at some point, have you both back for the conversation but I'd be I'd be doing everyone a shortage if I didn't uh, ask you guys some of the questions from the audience you all want to just 60 seconds because I had some want to jump in yeah because Bethany was go actually ahead. mentioning a study that I'm really familiar with the one that said we messed up go back and feed kids earlier um, that study was done by Dr. Hugh Sampson, and he is at Mount, out my, Mount Sinai in New York, and that's a, my, my son has been there to see a different specialist who works for Dr. Sampson, and I talked to him on the phone, and he actually expressed his frustration to me over this exact thing, because he said that his study has been misinterpreted, and it's being misapplied. His study was very specific. The study was, if children already have eczema, and, yeah. um, right, it's not all kids. It's if they already are showing these signs, which a lot of kids do, then, you know, in this limited and controlled way, you can, you can do this. But what's really interesting is that the kids who had a peanut allergy sensitization, even though it wasn't an allergy, they were excluded from the study. And so, you know, somebody like my kid who was already blood test positive at six months old before he was eating food, how was I supposed to give him peanut before that? I'm supposed to trust that it's not going to kill him. So I don't know like what to do there, but Dr. Sampson is not happy with this idea that pediatricians, which I know you're not, and, um, and food companies now are putting out these products saying, all the babies should eat all things at these early ages. Here's the powder, put it in. He's, he's just like, this is not what my study said at all. This is being taken completely out of context. And the very last thing is when you were talking about how vaccination rates do not mimic um, the climb in chronic illness, I wanted to point out, so my, my friend Heather Frazier wrote a book that you might be interested in called The Peanut Allergy Epidemic. I think like how to stop it, something like that, where she actually tracked emergency room admissions for food allergy anaphylaxis in the US, Canada, and I believe Australia, and they all exploded um, with kindergartners in 1995. So these are kids who were born in 89 or 88. And as you may know, the HIV vaccine was the first vaccine added to the schedule after um, Congress gave immunity to vaccine manufacturers in 1986. Then uh, it kicked in in 1988 and the first vaccine to be added was the HIV vaccine. So it actually does perfectly track. I'm not going to claim in every country, but I know that Heather has really dug deep in, in the US, Canada, and Australia. It does perfectly match it, but that might be a book that you would enjoy reading. Yeah. All right, Be Bethany, if you can respond the, to that in thirty seconds. The she's the the allergy study. She's you're right about. I don't you know I, don't, I haven't talked spoken with the author himself, but that is the new recommendation though is to expose kids early um, to these things to So and and really, I think we are just going to have to wait and see over the next five to ten years. Does that decrease the rates of these allergies or not? Um, I don't, you know, and they did, the study was on, was on atopic kids and they're taking that and applying it to everybody. So welcome to the world of how medicine really works. Um, basic, but my, my main goal, I am a pediatrician and that my main goal is to help these children and help parents make the most educated choice that they can and, and really ask it, you know, trying to do what's best for that individual child, which is not how most of most pediatricians work so. so i don't think we're going to get to most of the most of the questions here but we'll see if we can get to a couple of them this has been a really engaging great conversation love to have you both on some other point in time uh with that said i've got a bunch of them you know the way the politics are right now you know all of them happen to be <laughs> political they're they're all kind of grazing into that uh let me ask y'all uh, one that we've already kind of touched on, but we've got about 10 minutes before, before we wrap up. So what are some of the, this comes from one of our listeners, 
what are some of the better resources to research vaccines, ones outside of this CDC and the FDA? Is there some sort of repository or, or some sort of reliable data center for that? Not that I, I know this of. Was, I think this was directed actually at Robin from Bethany's uh, comment. So I think that you would actually be shocked by what you find and what you find is absent, even if you do stick with the CDC, PubMed, um, FDA. I, I use them as sources as much as I possibly can. If you're looking for someone who has pulled from those what we consider to be valid sources and, of course, highly regarded peer-reviewed journals and stuff like that, I think that Dell Bigtree does excellent work. I think he's very thorough. I think that Sayer G with Green Med Info is also very thorough. A friend of mine is named Ashley Everly. She's a toxicologist, and she put out a phenomenal binder. It's a physical binder. It's not really for sale, but some people print it off and create a binder. And it's called, I think it's like vaccine.guide is the URL for it. It's free. It's open to the public. All of it is straight peer-reviewed. So um, I think that those would be my, my go-to sources. I would also recommend the researchers and writers at Children's Health Defense with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think that they're highly reliable. Well, thank you. Next one from Charlie. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, so I'd be careful with the Robert F. Kennedy stuff because he's incredibly anti-vax. Um, but the but you could read, but that's kind of the point, read both sides of it and decide. The other one would be the Institute of Medicine. They've done several, now they get a lot of their data from FDA and CDC, but they do, they do complete peer review or they do complete literature reviews. Um, even using unpublished data, like if they find something that ha doesn't have to be published, but is a good source, then they'll use it. The other one that um, I was going to mention is the Cochrane study, Cochrane reviews. Mm -hmm. um, and they do some good reviews of things and they've done several mm -hmm. um, vaccine review studies and they give you, so you can go through their thing and that you can see the strength of each study that they used. And so then you can, you know, Try to try to you know figure out for yourself if these were good studies or poor studies or what you think of the information. Um, Excellent. One more I should have mentioned is the National Vaccine Information Center. I think that they're also very careful. All of these that I have mentioned, they they try to be extraordinarily careful, precise, and non-inflammatory. They try not to misinterpret. They try not to cherry pick. Um, but as Bethany said about IOM, IOM is so frustrating to me because they limit themselves, of course, by what research is out there. And so they did a huge review. I think they did some in 2001, some in 2004. Big questions, right? Like, do vaccines cause autism? Do vaccines cause type 1 diabetes? On and on and on. And their answers are so frustrating because the answer in so many is the evidence does not support the connection, right? Because you're limited by what journals have published what papers, and if people are dissuaded from this, they can't get funding to do this type of research, then there's a dearth in the medical literature, and IOM throws their hands up and says, there's no connection. That's not vindicating vaccination at all. That's just saying we're limited by what's there, and there's nothing there. Then IOM will turn around and say, we also don't think anyone should research this anymore. That's mind-boggling. That's in their recommendations. So. Yeah, I mean, if yeah, go read IOM, I guess, and you can see for yourself. Uh, like, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Let, let's get to the next one here. Let's get to the next one. We can debate sources. And again, that's an interesting topic. Uh, qu another question from Charlie. So this is from Charlie. Uh, what do you believe is the proper model for science, government, and money to work for the benefit of our country? And, and what I think he means here is he's talking about the, you know, the, the whole pandemic video. They were talking about the Bay Dole Act, where people who are doing medical research are able to patent their uh, findings, their, uh, in some cases, they're able to patent the vaccine, ultimately. Uh, is that something that incentivizes innovation, or does it incentivize corruption and conflicts of interest? The, the, the aim of that question is, Fau is Dr. Fauci's involvement with the vaccine, I, I assume. So, um, I mean, I used to study patent law. I'm all for people being able to patent their inventions, and it, it, it forces them to somewhat disclose as much as they can disclose without actually giving away all of their secrets, and maybe other people can build on that. I do think that it encourages innovation and creativity to allow people to patent things. 
Um, I mean, and you can't patent uh, naturally occurring things, you know, you have to be able to manipulate it some way or maybe uh, it's, it's mechanical. But this Fauci thing is crazy. People don't understand how much money is going through Fauci in the United States. And so Fauci wants to say, oh, I'm obligated to be on these patents. I'm obligated to receive this money. He turned around and said that he actually donates the money to charity. That's just the silliest thing I've ever heard. He didn't offer up any receipts. He didn't have anybody vouch for him, nothing. So our government is very closely tied to innovation. And so you have our government, our NIH, CDC is the same way, owning patents or partial patents or something, where they essentially are exactly tied in with vaccine manufacturers. And then they turn around and they act like they are also the safety oversight. Like what incentives do they have to make vaccines safer or to look out for our children when they're, they're putting them out with one hand and making money with the other. It's just insane. Like all of that needs to be separated. We need to have vaccine safety that's separated. We need to get our government out of money making for vaccines. So what's your opinion, Bethany? I, I don't research a lot of this stuff. So I, I actually only partially even understand how the whole thing works up in the government. And I think that's actually one of the issues with many of the doctors. We are we are so much more concerned with taking care of our individual patients that are in front of our face that as a whole physicians are not involved in, you know, most, a lot, I, I actually am probably more involved in some of the, like, right of conscience and some of the other issues that come up in medicine and that when medicine and, and politics interact, um, I know more things, and I come home, I go, I'll go to a conference with Christian Medical and Dental Association or something and learn about some of the issues that are going on and mention them to my colleagues, and they have no clue that any of these things are even happening, like, that physician-assisted suicide is being pushed across America. You know, these things, like, they, these things that we, that the majority of doctors, and there's lots of other issues, that we would completely disagree with, and the doctors have no clue that it's slowly being pushed down through the legislature. Um, a lot of times these things will pass in their own states before the doctors of the state even realize that it was there. So all of these... Sorry for interrupting. Something really interesting is this big World Health Organization meeting that happened in December, and Heidi Larson is sitting there, and she's talking to all of these doctors who came from all over the world, and she said, you guys spend a half a day on vaccines in medical school, never mind having time to keep up with the rest of it. It's not doctor's fault. They're not taught this stuff in medical school. Their work schedules are crazy, right? You said 50 hours. I'm sure there's doctors that work 70 hours. My own pediatrician, Bethany, is a lot like you. And um, I sent him something very interesting, a, an 80-page document from, um, from ICANN, which is the Dell Big Tree organization. And I said, this is such a great primer on so many issues, so many fundamentally important issues. And his response was, Robin, that's 80 pages. Who has time to read that? And I'm like, well, I make time to read that. But it's really helping my empathy for doctors because you guys do not have time to read this stuff. Now, that does not mean that doctors should be turning around and telling moms like me, not that you're engaging in this, that I don't know anything because, you know, I don't have a Google degree on my wall that <laughs> says anything about me going to medical school, right? Like, I don't deserve to be insulted when I'm the one who took the time to put in the research to learn all of these things. But yeah, I do feel for you because you are doing an important job. So with all of that said, we have time for closing statements or we have time for one last question. Your pick. One more question. One more question? Okay. So the last question is, this is a doozy from Anne. People like Alan Dershowitz are now claiming that the government has constitutional authority to vaccinate all Americans for COVID-19. How do we fight this? And uh, give me 30 seconds each. And I do mean 30 seconds each. We're running on the clock here. Go ahead, Robin. Okay, so um, I actually steered clear of that article. It just came out maybe 48 hours ago, and I had been traveling, and I didn't have time to read it, and that man really infuriates me, gets under my skin. It's not what I wanted to do with my time. But I'm almost certain that probably what he's referring to is the Jacobson case. And so Jacobson was the case that was about the smallpox vaccine. Like, you have to look back at how different we are now, right? When there's a smallpox vaccine, I can fathom how this went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was not actually, I do not believe the final decision was that 
states had the right to force vaccinate. The final decision was that you can be fined for it, you can be punished for it if you're refusing it when they say that you absolutely must get it. Times are different now. Everyone born between 1962 and let's say 1987 got probably 24 doses of just a couple of vaccines, right? DPT, polio, MMR, that's it. That's it. Kids today get 72 doses between conception and high school graduation, including the flu shots. That's absolutely bananas. So for Dershowitz to think that, that this is apples to apples comparison, if he's talking about the Jacobson lawsuit, is just insanity. But that's who he is. I, I, don't think the public will stand, I don't think the public will stand for it. I really don't think that we have to worry too much about a forced vaccination on a, on a, on a national scale. I mean, they tried to, Texas tried to mandate the HPV vaccine when it first was popular, and there was so much uproar that he rescinded it pretty quickly. And so I just don't, you know, and that's from, you know, just people like their freedom. People are not going to fall for any kind of, I, I don't think we have to worry about a mandated vaccine. I'm not concerned about it. Well, thank you both for being on here. Robin, what's the best place for people to find you? No, I'm not around. <laughs> You're not around? Okay. No. <laughs> All right. All right, Bethany, what's the best place for people to find you? Um, so you could, my, my website for my uh, practice is rifepediatrics.com. And you could go to that website and it's got my information there. And, uh, and you know, um, anybody who's looking, I am a telemedicine practice. I'm licensed in Alabama and Texas. And so if you're looking for a pediatrician that can help you make these decisions, I'm glad to do consults and, and discuss vaccines and, uh, and, and help you out, especially because I know that this is a national problem that unvaccinated or partially vaccinated kids can't get care. And I would love to care for, for any kids who, regardless of what your vaccination status is, and, uh, and would love to help you take care of your kids and make the best decision for your family. And with that, you've been listening to When Opinions Collide. If you're listening on the radio, that's on the Edge Radio Network, 1540 AM, 101.7 in Pasadena. Thank you, guys, and uh, thank you both for being on. Thank you. Thanks.